Yeah, I want to welcome everybody um, um, to the Lumen Christi uh, Institute Symposium on Financial Markets and Moral Inquiries. Uh, this is the 10th Symposium on Economics and Catholic Social Thought. Um, this is uh, sponsored by the Lumen Christi Institute and co-sponsored by the United States Concert Conference of Catholic Bishops, Committee of, on Domestic Justice and Human Development, and the Committee on International Justice and Peace, and uh, Catholics at Booth, uh, Catholic Student Association, the Catholic Research Economist Discussion Organization, and our Sunday Visitor Institute. Um, like I said, this is the 10th uh, symposium or conference on economics and Catholic social thought. And this was started by uh, Cardinal George um, around the time of the financial crisis, which was about 11 years ago uh, to this week that Bear Stearns uh, collapsed. And that was the first institutional failure of the financial crisis that led to the global financial crisis when Lehman Brothers would collapse uh, uh, six months later. Um, of course, it, it began as a crisis in the United States, but spread to the whole world involving uh, even the poorest countries. And paradoxically, it, it underscored the importance of finance for the economy and also the, the endemic problems in, in financial practice, culture, and oversight. Uh, Pope Francis has described the financial crisis as a profoundly human crisis and uh, warned the world not to make a false god of, of finance. Um, when he reorganized the Vatican, he founded the Dicastery for the Promotion of Integral Human Development and then uh, a year ago, uh, 10 years after the crisis, um, this dicastery uh, issued the document O Economicae et Pecuniarae Questiones, Considerations for an Ethical Discernment Regarding Some Aspects of the Present Economic Financial System. Uh, I read this document really as an invitation um, for the laity to not only uh, pick up the baton in helping finance better serve humanity and integral human development, but to invite lay members uh, with both gifts and expertise in this area into a conversation on how this might best be done. Um, today's symposium is designed toward that end, and uh, given the, role, the central role that the U.S. plays in global finance, it's appropriate to have this conference here with members of the dicastery, the U.S. Bishops' Conference, leading members of the financial world, and leading scholars all present. Uh, your moderator today is uh, quite accomplished in her own right. Maureen O'Hara is a Robert Purcell Professor of Economics at Cornell University. She was the first female president of the American Finance Association. She's deeply interested in these conversations as a founding uh, board member of CRADO, it's a Society of Catholic Economists, uh, in discussion on these topics. And she's even written a popular press book entitled Something for Nothing, Arbitrage and Ethics on Wall Street. And I think she has a few copies of those uh, afterwards if anybody wants to buy them. <laughs> Marie. I'll need Amazon for that. Uh, thank you, Joe. Well, I think as the moderator, I'm not the important person here, so I'm going to sit down and just say a couple of words, and then I will turn it over to our very distinguished panel. Uh, I, I want to get us thinking about today using the words of the Bulletino. We are all called to be sentinels and catalysts leading the search for the common good. I think those are really quite touching words. I think they get to the heart of why we're here today. And those of us who work in economics and finance, who work in business and work in other areas, 
I think one of the questions is, how do we lead the search for the common good? How do those of us who work in finance sort of balance the, the way markets work, where there often are winners and losers, with the need to think about how, how do we keep that within the context of the common good? And I think today's document is really an attempt to help us sort through all that. Um, and I, I think that I'm a big fan of the document. I think it's, it's very exciting. But I also think in its own way, because it makes us think about issues, there are some aspects that are you know, subject to debate. So I hope today we'll try and bring some of those out. And I do think you know, it helps to recognize this is not the first you know, attempt that the church has made, if you will, to make us think about the role of economics and markets and finance and Catholic teaching. Um, certainly there have been a number of um, encyclicals in the past, but you know, Pope Benedict um, made the statement, it is not the market that must be called to account, but individuals, their moral conscience and their personal and social responsibility. So that perspective is an interesting one. You know, it's, it's on the people. One way to interpret today's is maybe there is a broader view of that. So I think as we listen to our speakers today, I think again, we come back to how do we respond to the call? And I'm delighted with our speakers today. We are, I think all of us, really delighted that Cardinal Peter Turkson has joined us today, the prefect of the Dicastery for Human Development. Um, he has a, a, a number of titles here. Uh, I'll cut to the chase. Uh, <laughs> but uh, needless to say, um, you know, Cardinal Turkson is uh, as, as essentially overseeing this document, and I'm sure authorship rights to large, if not all of it, is the ideal person to tell us what this document says. And then we have three, I think, just superb people to give us perspectives on this. Um, so uh, Christopher Giancarlo, chairman of the Commodity Futures Trading Commission, is, uh, is certainly well posed to give us the perspectives of not only an active Catholic who works in the markets at, at the highest level, but also one whose job is to try and keep the markets within the realm, perhaps to pursue the common good. So I think those will be fabulous uh, comments that we're going to hear. He'll be followed by uh, John Studinsky. Um, uh, John is currently uh, vice chairman of PIMCO, having joined them five months ago from a variety of fascinating business career, having been at Blackstone and Morgan Stanley. I think what Mr. Studinsky brings to us is so much, both in looking at this from the perspective of the highest levels of finance, but also from his own personal life, which has involved extensive philanthropy, being a founder of the Genesis Foundation, being a founder of uh, a variety of other charitable organizations, um, reading his, um, his his you know resume just brings both pride and you know give it up to me. Uh, it's like wow, that's impressive. What have I been doing? Um, and finally, and not least, of course, is Mary Hirschfeld, who um, is a, a professor at Villanova, who is in both economics and theology. At the heart of this document is really sort of trying to understand the tension between economics and religion, between economics and theology, 
And I think Mary is the ideal person to give us the perspective of Catholic social teaching. So I think we're going to have a very exciting panel. I'm going to stop talking because I want to listen to our speakers. But when they're done, we're going to uh, have an opportunity for questions. Uh, we'll, you know, we'll, we'll open it up particularly for students because that's the tradition. So the first few questions will be students, but then we'll open it up in general. We may have some discussion amongst the panel. I think it'll be a great evening. So with that, let me turn this over to um, you know, Cardinal uh, Dirksen. Thank you very much. The floor is yours. I think standing would be perfect. So uh, thank you, Madam Moderator, for giving me the uh, floor. And uh, thank you all of Lumen Christi for organizing this and bringing me a second time to Chicago to talk about something I didn't go to seminary to talk about or to learn about. Uh, the second time you're getting me here to talk about economics. And not having studied economics myself, I talk about economics from listening to what econo economists have to say. And then I try to bring it home, related to uh, the little I know about the church's social thought and a little bit of theology. So uh, I'm going to share some of that with you this evening and I uh, hope that it does justice to that small document that we gathered here to look at. It's not a terrible big document, very small thing, made up only 30 pages, but it tries to say something also very small to us. So, uh, my dear friends, your excellencies, my Lord, our bishop, bishops, and all of you, dear lecturers, professors, and economists, in the year 2011, at the height of the global financial crisis, our dicastery in the Vatican, at that time, it went by the name of Council, Pontifical Council for Justice and Peace. We did a small document because we thought that the financial crisis can be uh, understood or an analysis of that can be provided and on the basis of the analysis provide some solutions or some guidelines. So we tried to do an ethical analysis of the situation and then provided and called for the need for public, global public authority to, to exercise oversight over, over some financial activities. We did that document because we thought we were responding to a call of the Second Vatican Council, which invited the church to enter into dialogue with all aspects of society as an expression of its solidarity and love for human society. So since then, we've been, we've entertained this habit of uh, engaging and starting this dialogue with society in several ways. Tonight is about economics and the market. Sometimes we've done with other areas. When we leave here in June, we'll be meeting the CEO of oil and gas companies We've done with CEO of mining companies and so on and on and on. We carry the dialogue on with any sector of society that we think can benefit from the guidelines of the church's social thought. So finance is not a new thing to the church. It's out there in scriptures, in the gospels and all. The sacred scriptures, for example, address the issue of the management of assets and finance and property, 
in the patriarchal narratives of the Old Testament and even in the prophets and uh, later on in the Gospels themselves. Now, while in the Gospels, financial and assets management provide an imagery which appears in parables to describe the wise and the creative response of people to the gospel preaching and message of Jesus. At the same time, Jesus also cautions about certain aspects of financial life and certain ways of dedicating oneself just to well-being and the accumulation of resources and finance. Accordingly, in the legal tradition, for example, of the ancient Israel, usury was proscribed and the Jubilee year was established to give people a new lease on life when people will return and get back their property and have a chance to start all over again. So that did exist. But it was also clear from prophets like Amos and all that the management of finance did bring misery and pain to some also in society, depending on how people exercise this area of science. So Pope, Paul, Pope Francis, for example, accordingly, following all of this, he did jolt the conscience of the, of, of, of the world with his great obsession with wealth when he observed in his uh, pastoral exhortation, Evangelii Gaudium, that how can it be that it's not a new, it's no news item when a poor elderly man dies on the street homeless from exposure, but it is news that makes the headlines when the stock market falls one or two points. This was a statement that was made by Pope Francis, and I recall President Obama having quoted Pope Francis' statement also before the Senate, saying that the Pope has said something that we need to all take into consideration. How is it that a poor man dying on the street doesn't make headlines, but when the stock market falls one or two points, that makes the headlines? So Pope Francis uh, said this, draw attention again to sometimes how the emphasis may be placed and the fact that finance or money must serve the human person and not the human person reduced to serving finance. So we should expand our effort then to align the management of finance and its assets with the well-being and the inclusive flourishing of the human person or the human family. And uh, the church, on her part, also does investment and does make use of resources, money, financial, whatever, for its own mission and from, for, for the evangelization, for its work of evangelization. So has a very serious and deeply rooted interest also in the world of finance. So the management of these assets in a way that is consonant with the witness positive witness of the church's teaching of Christian faith and the charity of Christ is something that the church holds very dear. Because again, the witness is this, that economic life raises social and moral questions for each one of us and for society as a whole. And that it is in making decisions about managing resources and investment that we give proof 
of our Christian identity and life of discipleship, and the conviction that local and global economics must be viewed not only in terms of production and distribution, but also in terms of their effect on the environment, the dignity of people, and the way that it ensures their well-being. On account of this, Pope, John, uh, Pope Benedict XVI did call for an ongoing constant dialogue between faith and reason, indeed economic reason, scientific reason, and all forms of reason, and did make the point that sometimes it is faith that exposes the blind spots of reason and some forms of this reason. So the dialogue of Pope, uh, Pope Benedict is so true and has been taken up by Pope Francis who, uh, and, and ultimately in the composition of this small document. For it was Pope Benedict then who said in his encyclical letter, Caritas in Veritate, that the economic sphere is neither ethically neutral nor inherently inhuman and opposed to society. It is part and parcel of human society and human activity, and precisely because it is human, it must be structured and governed by ethical considerations and ethical principles. So this observation of Pope John Benedict goes a long way to lead us to recognize that, in this sense, said the church and the Pope in responding to this seek then also to recognize the fact that in its own work of using and managing finance, it needs to get people who are ethically motivated to do this. So, when uh, at the turn of the, uh, at the beginning, at the beginning of uh, last year, the Congregation for Doctrine of Faith came to our office and discussed the possibility of doing another document to provide ethical guidelines for financial operations and all. It was something that we embraced. For us, it was a follow-up on this small other document that we done in 2011. And so that's what, it, that's, that's, that's what we did. Therefore, the document that we gathered this evening to kind of provide a small introduction to is a document that began some time ago all seeking to fashion this dialogue that we seek to create between faith and any aspect of reason or social science. We did this, as I have said, in 2011, when we produced a small booklet about towards reforming the international financial and monetary system in the context of global public authority. It was a small booklet that is, and this brought us here to chat about this in 2012. After that, the same dialogue, conversation between churches, social thought, and the different the world of business, got us to also produce another small booklet, expressing and capturing the same sense of dialogue in another small book, which we call the Vocation of the Business Leader. And this subsequently has been translated into 15 languages now, and is used in several universities, even here in the United States. This also got us to engage, as I've mentioned already, in several dialogue with several business sectors of society, the mining group, the oil and gas society, and several others, to the point that it inspired the, the development of another small document about the agricultural leader 
from the world of Des Moines and the Midwest about people who are interested seriously also in doing agriculture. So the last one, the latest one then, which is what has brought me here, is this small one that always does challenge everybody to revise their knowledge of Latin. Because the title is always Latin and you have to, you know, do it in Ecumenicae et Pecuniariae Questiones. Questions about economics and finance. Okay, so some ethical considerations in that regard. And indeed, talking about this document, I'd like to uh, make this basic observation given the brief time available. We can look at this document in three parts. Uh, three parts, which means some. I think here with the experts of economics, I won't say errors, but some questionable economic positions and the practices that these positions have spawned out. So if you want some questionable practices which have also developed from this, but the document doesn't end with these practices, bad practices, but provides potentials for new development and potentials of growth. So what are these uh, questionable, uh, you know, theoretic positions or theories uh, which produce some of these, you know, uh, bad effects and principles? For example, the first one is about the sense of the human person. Who is man or who is the human person? So the basic question that this document, you know, departs or begins with is the sense, it's a true sense of anthropology. Who is the human person? And, and, and it argues that from a true sense of the human person, one proceeds. If the human person is understood as only a factor of production and that it enhances position by maximizing productivity, then the human person is essentially seen in terms of production. It's not a person, it's a producer of goods. But from the church's social point of view, or its social teaching, work doesn't have only one meaning. Work is not limited to what we produce. Work is also what we do to our person. Work is an expression of our personalities, our creativity, our intuition, and our talents, and all of that. So work has different sides. When work is limited to just the output what we produce, it diminishes the character of the human person because it overlooks the other subjective part of work. So work in that sense, okay, uh, makes it, which puts all the emphasis on productivity and maximizing productivity, it just leads to the situation of looking at everything in terms of productivity to the point that the human person becomes simply an economic whatever agent looking for productivity and growth. And in that sense, every other person becomes an opponent, a competitor. And a competitor and opponent is somebody who is always uh, in adverse relationship with, with the other person. So this sense of the human person does not promote the life of communion. It does not promote the life of cooperation. It does not promote the, coming, the human being coming together in any way to do anything. So in the, in the light of this, we, the document reminds us of the fact that the human person is a relational being. That was what was created to be. And as a relational being, it responds essentially to a big virtue of justice. And justice in this sense means when we respect the demands of the relationship in which we stand, then we just. 
So every human being then is invited to respond to the demands of a relationship in which it stands. So the human person is not an individual, some kind of a Robinson Crusoe type of economics, when everybody, the one is an individual, everybody else that he meets is a competitor. We think mm -hmm. that kind of anthropology should be corrected a little bit. And when it's not corrected and it goes that way, reducing the human person to just the, you know, a, a, an agent and max, for maximizing productivity, then invariably the sense of, you know, this Robinson Crusoe type of thing. Thomas Hobbes said, you know, man is a wolf unto, unto himself. That everybody is opposed to the other. Everybody is in competition with the other. And there's no way of collaborating, coming together to achieve anything, which is the destiny of the human person. Created to coexist for our common good. When we cannot do anything in communion for a common good, then our aims and our objectives are not realized easily. The second element then that flows from this is the sense of business. If as a result of this, if as, if as a result of the business is just reduced to maximizing profit and finance also to maximize an interest and gain, then again the sense of business is also a little bit, a little bit if you want, attenuated. Because business for us is a vocation. It's something that God calls every business person to become and to do. So businessmen are actually co-creators with God. And one way that we express that very commonly to people is that we're sitting now on furniture of one kind or the other. God created trees. He didn't create furniture. It takes the talent of business to create furniture for the concrete need of human, 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 the, you know, of the human family. So in that sense, business... In our business, people respond to a very noble vocation call from God to continue to transform the ordinary elements of creation to the concrete specific needs of humanity. In that sense, business is a very noble vocation, co-creators with God. But when business is reduced to just that thing about making profit and maximizing profit and all, and that becomes the ultimate goal and aim of business, it also kills the sense of business a little bit. And if from that finance takes over, then finance, which is supposed to promote economic growth and business, then is now become a, you know, an industry in itself. And what it originally, the name is that. Finance means fitness. Something that always works towards an objective and a goal. But if the objective and the goal of promoting economic life and making economic life tribal and work, if that is not there, that is reduced and finance becomes an aim, an objective in itself, then again the sense of finance is also a little bit, a little bit a kind of reduced. So in that sense, again, then we like to, the document calls for a certain amount of the guidance of ethics, ethical principles a little bit. And in this sense, we recognize that, you know, this, is also has, this also has a nice history to look at. It was in 1829, when an English archbishop who was teaching in Oxford, Richard uh, Bishop uh, Richard Whatley or Whitley, W-H-A-T-E-L-Y, wanting to promote economics as a science in itself, suggested something that is known, I suppose, in academic circles as the NOMA. Okay, that you know, uh, economics should not come under ethical guidance of religion or faith. So, for economics to be a science, it should be ethical, you know, ethic ethically free or free of ethical guidance. So, this uh, this this caught on, 
and, and was promoted. And lately when this was adopted, I suppose here in Chicago, by you know Robert Carr, I think it's a scholar here at one point. That thing, thing then became fine. Then two forms of economics can develop. Their ethics can develop. There can be religious ethics, but there can also be the ethics of business and finance. And the ethics of business and finance that would then be if something is not illegal and is seen to be pro, uh, a promotion, uh, promotional of the growth and whatever, then it is ethically necessary to. To, to operate and to, 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 to do it or to go with it. This tendencies all spawn all kinds of developments and treatments of, uh, of this very vital area in very, very different ways. And clearly, the thing about greed also crept in. And unscrupulous people took that thing the way they wanted to take them. If, if, you know, if uh, ethical guidance is a dispensable commodity, or accompaniment in this business, then it could go in any other in any other direction. The third one, of course, then from this became the well-being. What is the sense of well-being that is presented in our society? Following upon the sense of the understanding of the human person and the understanding of work, business, and in our know, finance, well-being then is essentially also reduced in essentially economic terms. The more one has, the more one is supposed to be happy. But we know lately that about, uh, in, about in, in our late last, uh, just around the turn of the century, Amartya Sen of Harvard had invited us to broaden the scope of what constitutes growth and development and happiness and well-being for people. It's not just the GDP or the amount of quantum of money and sums and all of that. So the sense of well-being also has to change. Driving by incidents from Washington to, you know, Washington, Georgetown University to the airport, I was driving with a Jesuit. And when we got into talking about what I'm coming here to do, and I mentioned this, he said, let me tell you about the result of some work which was done by a group of agnostics. They were not religious people. They did survey trying to find out what constitutes well-being for people. And the answer, when people learn to be charitable, they appreciate their lives better. So these were agnostics, these were not church people, but in charity, in the exercise of charity, they found the source of well-being and finance. So all of these tendencies come together and they have different types of you know, consequences for us. If they think about finance as just maximizing money and maximizing gains, you know about the defects that we have, offshore banking which siphons essential capital from investment and economy into laid up in certain place. Where what is meant to be the lifeblood of economy or economic activity is siphoned and put elsewhere. Offshore banking becomes that term. LIBOR fiction becomes a term. So these are the type of defects that we, uh, the document sees about, some way of taking and understanding finance. So essentially, the document doesn't condemn anything. It's just saying that a certain way of looking at the human person, about looking at understanding market and finance, and a certain way of understanding well-being leads to the practice, some other questionable practices, which are not good for the well-being of humanity. In the light of that, the document calls for essentially two things. Ethical guidance, ethical discernment, about what is proper and good to do and what is not proper and good to do. And the second thing that it calls for is the thing of 
certification of certain financial practices where it is necessary and the guidance of some public authority in some of the areas. So these are the two things that the document calls for in the light of what it observes to be questionable practices, beginning with how we understand the human person, how we understand economics, finance, and the market, and how, what constitutes for us well-being or happiness. And the document says to the extent that these depart sometime on some false assumptions or false uh, no, premise, they can also generate certain bad practices which makes it necessary to provide ethical guidance and call for certain controls and certain certification to make uh, finance and the market serve the well-being of the human person. So common good is an expression that you find constantly in this document because that's what is considered as the aim. All the sciences and all the you know, activities of the, of the human person, whether in the market or the finance, is supposed to lead them to serve the common good of the human person because every human person has a dignity that is not given to him by state, by any institution in this world, but given to him by reason of his birth. And that expresses itself in the common good and the rights that people have. So the operations of market and finance, according to this small document, mm -hmm. should promote the attainment of people's well-being and their common good. And that's what this document is all about. Thank you. Balatino argues that we need solid and strong barriers, and this requires continuously updated regulation. Um, this is perhaps even more true today as markets are more integrated and tied together. So I think my second speaker here, uh, who uh, Christopher Giancarlo, who is the chairman of the Commodity Futures Trading Commission, is actually someone who plays an important role in exactly this issue. Where does regulation come in? How, how does regulation get us closer to something that brings us to the common good. So, Chris? I think that this will work just fine. Thank you. Uh, thank you, Maureen, and, and uh, your eminence. Thank you uh, for giving us um, uh, such a, 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 um, a beautiful introduction to the questiones, um, and many of the points you made are ones that I want to reflect on in my remarks. I just thought I, I might begin just with two points of introduction to me, so at least uh, you might understand where I come from on some of these issues. So I, I'm a lifelong uh, practicing Catholic, and, and faith very much informs uh, a lot of my uh, professional life. I spent 30 years uh, in the private sector. Um, I also pride myself on my independence uh, and my political bipartisanship. I'm one of the few people that was appointed to my post, first by President Obama, and then unanimously confirmed by the Senate, and then I was reappointed to the chairmanship by President Trump, and then remarkably um, um, unanimously confirmed the second time around. Uh, my brother, who is a, a, is, a, is a very sharp critic of all things, especially all things about me, uh, pointed out that uh, the, the reason I was unanimously confirmed the second time is either because people don't know what I do, or I haven't annoyed enough people in my, in my term of office. But uh, it, it's been a great um, honor for me to serve uh, as the chairman of the U.S. Commodity Futures Trading Commission. The U.S. Commodity Futures Trading Commission, known as the CFTC, is the world's only 
derivatives-only regulator. Um, other, other major developed economies have securities regulators that regulate both markets for stocks and bonds and derivatives. But only the United States has a separate agency for equity and debt markets, which is the Securities Exchange Commission, and an independent regulator for derivative markets. Now, derivatives sound uh, highly uh, technical and obscure and exotic and perhaps even very modern. Uh, but just let me, let me talk about that for a second. Aristotle writes about derivative markets going back to the 6th century BC. He writes about a philosopher named Thales, who philosophy was his side business. His primary business was running an olive uh, grove. And he figured out that on uh, uh, growing seasons that were very productive, all the local olive presses would be busy and he would not be able to get time at the olive press. And on seasons when that were bad growing season, uh, there would be plenty of time at the olive press. And what he did is went in the wintertime, went to the olive pressers and said, I'll pay you a small fee for the option of being able to use your press in a good growing season. And he very cleverly then had access to those presses at the time of a very good growing season, and that was an option market, and options are derivatives. Uh, other types of derivatives are very well known here in Chicago, futures that are traded on the Chicago Mercantile Exchange and the Chicago Board of Trade. And then uh, a very large global market in over-the-counter swaps, and over-the-counter swaps were uh, extremely uh, conspicuous during the financial crisis, and uh, there were many calls. Uh, there were accords reached by the G20 in Pittsburgh in 2009 that were noted in His Eminence's uh, 2011 work and calls for reforming that market. Um, I had spent uh, a decade and a half uh, running one of the largest trading platform for over-the-counter swaps, and so after the financial crisis, hence the call from President Obama to serve at the CFTC and help us implement our reforms of that market. So that's, that's the background I wanted to note. I, I also want to note the value proposition of these fancy things known as derivatives that go back to the 6th century BC. Those equity and bond markets regulated by the SEC for the business students in the audience and the laymen, we all know those are markets for the transfer of capital. Whether it's a stock or a bond, essentially someone with capital is transferring that capital to someone who has a business opportunity whether it be for return of debt or return for equity. It's a, it's a capital transfer market from those with capital to those with opportunity, from those with opportunity without capital to get the capital to grow their business. I, I point that out only by way of explaining what derivative markets do. Derivatives are not capital transfer markets. Derivatives are risk transfer markets. They're used by our farmers who have the risk of prices. In fact, the worst thing for a farmer is an excellent growing season because what happens to the price? It falls. Farmers have fixed costs, fuel for their tractor, farm labor, fertilizer, seed. They have fixed costs. What they don't have is any certainty as to what price they'll get at harvest time. So what they are able to do is using the futures market, they're able to transfer some of that risk by buying an option or by buying a futures contract to give them some certainty as to what their price will be at harvest time. The reason we Americans and many people in developed countries are able to walk into a supermarket 
without ever having to pause on the threshold or the, the sliding doors of the supermarket and wonder if it's been a good growing season and therefore whether there'll be fresh vegetables on the shelf or bread on the shelves is because our agricultural industry uses derivatives to mitigate the risk of rising and falling futures prices. And you know this is true because in, in places in the world that do not have functioning futures markets, the price volatility can mean the difference between uh, good times and plenty of food on the shelves or bad times where not only will there not be good food on the shelves at harvest time, there won't be food on the shelves for years to come because the farmers will have gone bankrupt and will not be able to plant the following season. So derivatives are risk transfer markets that provide certainty and continuity. And it's not just in agriculture, although that's the most well-known, but everything in the developed economy way of life has a risk mitigating factor. Whether it's the, the, the interest rate paid on school loans or auto loans or home mortgages, those, the, the reason why here in America the standard home ownership tool is a 30-year fixed rate mortgage. I mean, think about 30 years fixed rate, interest rates over 30 years are going up and down, and yet as consumers we can enjoy 30 years to fixed rates is because the banks that are lending to us are able to mitigate their risk in these large risk transfer markets that happen on a global basis. So derivatives have a very important social function, and that is to mitigate risk. And they've served well most of the time. And in other times, as we've seen in the financial crisis, they can work not so well, which is one of the reasons why there is policy development at many multilateral uh, levels from the, the G20 through the Financial Stability Board or organizations like the International Securities Regulators Association, IOSCO. When the Bulletino was published last spring, I read it with great interest on, on any number of levels. Um, I thought it was masterful in reminding us, as His Eminence said a minute ago, that people must not serve markets, markets must serve humankind, and reminding us of that moral and ethical dimension of markets. But I also thought, I, I welcomed it on another level as well, and that is, as a Catholic, I am also always um, disappointed by voices, uh, in, in public voices, that say the church's voice should be limited to the periphery of the public square, that periphery that involves strictly moral or theological issues. I welcome the, the church's voice on all manner of public issues, from finance and otherwise, and I thought the letter did a very good job of reminding us of the moral dimension of the work that we do in finance. And for me as a regulator, it also reminded me once again of the particular duties of regulators to look at the excesses of, of finance and to use our influence to try to curb those excesses. We, in a sense, are the ones that operate the guardrails down the highway, and it reminded, us of the reminded me of the importance of that. There were three elements in the letter that um, I thought that the letter did not fully appreciate the way that these elements actually serve the public. Uh, and they have to do with derivatives, which is our area of expertise. And those are, are, are the three areas where the, the uh, letter um, uh, cast um, uh, some, some question about what it referred to as information asymmetries in markets. And I want to come to that in a second. 
The second element was speculation in the market. And the third was profiting from the ruin of others. And what uh, my colleague Bruce Tuckman, who's our chief economist at the CFTC, and I did in June of last year, is responded to the Vatican's letter with, a, with our letter of our own, complimenting it on its outspokenness and its wide-ranging and very worthwhile views on many things. But we also sought to clarify these three issues. And I want to talk about them for a second. The issue of information asymmetry was a question of whether those with superior information in a marketplace, what are their responsibilities to you how to use that information? And should that information be made widely available before those holding that information could act on it in the marketplace? And we address that issue by beginning uh, just with a simple old joke. And the joke is uh, someone is having car trouble and they go to see their local mechanic and they say to the mechanic, there's something wrong with my engine. And the mechanic says, well, let's have a look. And he opens up the hood of the car and he looks around, he listens to the engine, he takes out a wrench, he looks for one particular spot he bangs on it and says, okay, go ahead and start the car. The person who starts the car, it starts right up. And the person says, wow, that was fantastic. One bang, that was terrific. And the mechanic says, that'll be $100. And the man says, Whoa, wait a minute, $100? All you did was bang in one spot. And the mechanic says, oh, it's not $100 for banging that spot. It's only $1 for the bang. It's $99 for knowing where to bang. The point being there is, in all of our lives, we all have information asymmetry. Those physicians that may be listening have superior knowledge in that regard. Mechanics have superior knowledge. Many of us work hard to study, to become educated, to have superior knowledge. I believe that there is moral utility in divergency in knowledge sets, and all of us focusing on a particular area and gaining knowledge in that area. And we all have a legitimate expectation of being able to profit from that knowledge. That same mechanic who charged $100 to bang in the right spot, the next day may have to go visit his doctor for some treatment and may pay that $100 to the doctor for his superior knowledge. And the doctor may then go the next day to see their accountant and they pay his accountant for her superior knowledge in tax policy. So a diverse society has a information asymmetries and buy-in of themselves are, do not present, I believe, moral dilemmas. It's when they may be abused, and we'll talk about that in a minute. The second area where we wanted to make clear our view that in markets, um, um, this element may not be necessarily without its, its moral and its social utility, is in the area of speculation. Now, sp speculators are often uh, um, uh, seen as the bad people in markets, but let me there too, there also give you a small example of the social utility of speculators. A farmer who grows wheat arrives at a market on a Monday to sell his truckload of wheat. And he arrives there looking for a miller to buy the wheat. But for whatever reason, there is no miller there on Monday. So the farmer turns around and takes his wheat and goes back to the farm. 
On Tuesday, a miller arrives at the market, hoping to buy wheat. Unfortunately, the farmer went home on Monday, and he's not there on Tuesday. The miller goes back to his millery uh, without um, any wheat to mill. In both of those cases, society is not served. There is not bread on the shelves on Wednesday because the farmer on Monday didn't meet the, the miller who arrived on Tuesday. But if instead, on Monday, the farmer went to the village square and instead of a miller, there was a speculator. A speculator will say, who will say, well, I won't pay you the same price that the miller will would have, but I'll pay you a price that's worth it for you not to take your wheat and turn around and go back to your farm. I'll pay you a smaller amount, but I'll pay you something. And I'll pay you a little bit less than the miller would because I don't know if that miller's showing up on Tuesday. I don't know if the miller's coming on Wednesday. I don't know when the miller's coming. And I'm willing to take the risk that I'll pay you something now, and when the miller does show up, I'll be able to charge that miller a little bit more to cover my risk that I'm bearing without any determination of when it will be filled. Now, chances are that speculator has studied the marketplace and kind of knows that good chances are good that the miller will arrive on Tuesday. If they haven't done that homework, then they're taking much bigger risks than they should. But that's the role that speculators play. Speculators allow natural market participants to meet in the marketplace, but across time. They take the time risk that otherwise would not be served. And by the way, a time risk that a farmer can't afford, a time risk that a miller can't afford, but a speculator can't afford. So spe without, without speculators, you would not have successful markets. And, and I think that's important to bear in mind. Now, once again, there can be abuses in this area. And once again, part of that is the role of regulators. But speculation by itself is a healthy market activity. It's a necessary market activity. And speculators bear risk and need to be compensated for bearing that risk. The last point I wanted to make is something that the uh, Bulletino talks about is um, profiting from the ruin of others. And this is something that does take a little bit of thinking about, but it often comes up in the area of credit default swaps. Credit default swaps are insurance that a creditor, against the default of a creditor to a credit relationship. And the worry there is that people will buy that insurance even if they don't have an insurable interest. This is sometimes known as naked credit default swaps. I want to return to that for a second, but before I do, I just want to talk about the notion of profiting from the ruin of others. There are things called annuity contracts. My 85-year-old mother, before my stepfather passed away 10 years ago, bought her an annuity contract. And I guess when the insurance company sold it, it was hoping to profit off the ruin of others because it hoped my mother would have died years ago. But God bless her, she is cooking along beautifully and eventually she's going to profit off the insurance company's ruin. So we have in our marketplace many examples that we recognize as entirely legitimate of profiting off the ruin of others. Now let me go to the specific item that was mentioned in the Bulletino and that is when, when people are able to buy credit default protection against a default by a creditor and yet they don't actually own the underlying debt. And the example that the Bulletino uses is something called sovereign credit default swaps or sovereign CDS. That is when market investors will buy um, 
protection or, or will buy a credit default swap hoping that a, a government that has sovereign debt would fail and pay out on that credit default protection. Sounds awful, right? A government um, issues debt and there are those in the marketplace that will buy a product that will pay out if that government defaults in its debt. But guess who are the biggest beneficiaries of that credit default protection? It's the governments themselves that are issuing the debt. In fact, the most profligate governments, unless there's a functioning sovereign CDS market, are not able to sell their debt. And the reason why is because those who are likely to invest in that debt want to know that they can buy protection if it fails. That's how they hedge their risk. So some of the, uh, the, the governments in this world that are paying the highest rate of interest because their finances are in terrible order are the very ones that work to make sure there's an established sovereign CDS market so that the investors are likely to invest in their debt, have some alternative, and are willing to invest in the debt. So even in this notion of profiting off the ruin of others, it's the very ones who are issuing debt that very much need that marketplace in place. So I guess the point which I'm trying to make is that in modern finance, there are many things that sound to perhaps those who haven't taken the time to study them to be somewhat, I don't want to use the word immoral, but improper and potentially immoral. And yet there's a social utility to them if they're done right. And I think that's where the role of regulators come in. And I'll, and I'll close with this. We recently had a situation, and Maureen and I were talking about it as we were sitting here for a few minutes, where there were market participants that were trying to use the credit default markets to do something called manufactured default. That is to go to companies that did not have financial trouble to get them to default in their obligations in order to pay out on some of this credit default protection, in which case they would then share some of the money with, with the, those creditors. It would be like saying, I'm going to set my own, I'll set your house on fire so that you can collect the insurance money and then we'll split it between us. And as a regulator, I must say that regulators will often watch things like this happen and let them happen and then send in the enforcement team, sue everybody, and maybe send some people off to jail. We did something a little bit different. And here may be the case where I drew upon my own faith-based approach to things. I said, this is like watching two cars come down either side of the street and heading right for each other. Should I just stand here and let the crash happen? Or should I use the moral authority of our office not to say what you're doing is impermissible, to say, think about it. Is this the right thing to do? Is, is this cannibalizing the market for individual gain at the, at the, at, to, the, to the detriment of everybody? And we issued a public statement, and they called off the deal. It was amazing how a little suggestion that people think twice about what they were doing, suggestion by a regulator, albeit, <laughs> but the suggestion caused them to call off the deal. And now the standard documentation that allowed this, the loophole, is being fixed uh, by the trade association that have written these standard contracts. So it's something where I think bringing moral authority to our role as regulator, not just seeing the job as one that's just 
following the text of a rule, but actually bringing a greater moral authority to it has served us very well. And so with that, I'll close and I look forward to the discussion. Thank you. Thank you, Commissioner Jean Carlo. I think those comments are, are extremely thoughtful. Um, our next speaker, um, I think is by way of introduction, I want to quote from the Valentino again. It is a public good to protect and search for the adverse optimization of risk. And in fact, that's a theme that I think we've just heard articulated well. But with these words, I think the Valentino highlights the role that the asset managers, financial advisors, others who are actually involved in the financial markets can play. So, you know, far from being uh, rapacious, um, you know, uh, dogs of capitalism, I think that the financial markets, the advisors, and others can play such an important role. And our speaker today, um, Josh Dodinsky, is I think a great example of someone who has worked at finance at the highest level. So. John, we'll, we'll let, why don't you help us understand how all this fits together from your perspective? One of my um, one of my great uh, mentors, who uh, occasionally comes to me during my meditations. Um, has said most often to me, and I've shared it sometimes in meetings, and I get a very, very blank stare from a lot of my colleagues, but it's also like kicking them in the ass and sometimes throwing a bucket of cold water in their face. The meditation goes like this. The devil enters your soul through your ego. That, of course, we know comes from probably one of the great, at one point, one of the great sort of outcasts of the church, but now probably one of the great doctors of the church, Teresa of Avila, the Spanish mystic. And she was obviously someone who understood social psychology, psychology, and understood very much the relationship between the devil and the ego. And I think one must keep in mind that many of the things that happen today happen because of the ego and how we define. We have so many terms in society that we associate with prestige, wealth, success, money, greed, return, moik, uh, compound return, etc. The new is the old concealed and the old is the new revealed. That comes from another fan of many people in this room, St. Augustine. And again, it points to the fact that while we're looking for regulators, while we're looking for a lot of guidance uh, in the asset management world or in the finance world, uh, a lot of it goes back to some of the basics of the scriptures uh, and that the actions of good 
really unite heaven and earth. So where is this all going? Uh, you know, I looked at the document, I read it two or three times, I'm not as clever as some of my panelist colleagues can read it once, I had to read it I think three times before I could understand it, uh, and at one point I thought of reading it backwards, think that it might make even more sense. Um, but then I went back and read um, Pope Paul VI uh, Popularum Progressio, where he talks about the fact that man needs God to prosper. I went back and looked at Santissimus Annum, Annus, uh, John Paul II, and I also looked at a number of Benedict's writings, and Benedict, of course, will go down as one of the most profound writers uh, in terms of understanding the church. So this is, we've got saints, we've got servants, we've got angels, we've got apostles, and we've got the scriptures. So that's the first set of characters. So let's move to what I'm supposed to be talking about today, the category of money talks, bullshit walks, which is basically markets and fund management. Um, I think it's important we don't get caught up in today. You know, markets have been around for 2,000 years, 5,000 years, and we, we talk about this in a Catholic context, but we need to think about it in a in a Christian context, and more importantly, in an Aramaic context, um, people have been trading. And while we're talking about money and financial markets today, we don't know, if you go to the system in China today, so many transactions now take place on the mobile phones. In 10 or 20 years, the current financial markets are probably going to be uh, replaced by something very different. Markets are changing. Uh, let's remember markets were heavily regulated starting in 1933-34. Uh, they were reassessed in 2008. There's lots of things have gone on. Um, the emergence of China is going to have a big difference in distorting the role of the United States versus China in terms of which set of markets, but moreover which set of values actually drive um, the world. And the other thing I would say, which many young people, many millennials talk to me about is, if we look at emerging markets, you know, if we look at 22 emerging markets today, over half of them are run by authoritarian leaders, where democracy is not really that important. And many young people ask me, do you need the liberal democratic model to actually be successful in markets or in capitalism? And is the liberal democratic model and we're even seeing this and questioning this here in the United States, is it breaking down and is it getting to a point of where people are losing faith in it? And how does this affect markets? So that's the overview of the markets and we have, you know, markets are supposed to be efficient. Uh, I went to this school at the University of Chicago, I'm very proud of that, where we, we studied efficient markets with a number of people, whether it's uh, Stieglitz or Fama or a number of other august Nobel Prize winners. But having said that, markets are not efficient. And quite frankly, what happens 
when you have inefficient markets is because of a lack of transparency, uh, a lack of information, uh, or distortions. And if you look at the distortions in 2008, that had to do with bubbles that existed, to do with um, uh, counterparty risk, and a number of other types of transactions that were very much behind closed doors, black box transactions that many people did not understand that caused uh, de facto a liquidity crisis. Uh, you, you can go back in history all the way back to the tulip crisis and the overvaluation of tulips and the Dutch uh, at an earlier point in history as well. And of course we have the regulations that followed the crisis in 1929. So this is, you know, I'm saying all these things just to put this in context that uh, markets, people are people, but markets are going to keep changing. And while we talk about finance, let's remember money only became relevant as a trading tool in the sort of really created by the Rothschilds and was created in the 14th, 15th and 16th centuries in Europe. Prior to that, people used, they traded. So I'm, you know, I tend to go back to Matthew 25, um, the parable of the talents, because I think there, God's making the very clear message that people have to use their skills, use their strengths, whatever they are, uh, to maximize or to succeed, to invest based on their own abilities, based on their own acumen, based on their own dignity, which is a word we've heard a number of times uh, from Cardinal Turkson uh, as he talked about sort of the, the foundation of the common good. So when I look at the stakeholder universe today, uh, let's remember it's not about just regulating a financial institution. Uh, everyone in this room either has a pension or will have a pension, or has a savings or will have a savings. Um, so you all have an ability as a pension uh, fund uh, unit holder to have a view about the assets in your pension fund. Many of you participate in defined benefits, defined contribution. Many of you can actually state what you will and will not tolerate as an investment vehicle in those funds. But there are many stakeholders in society. There's, there's the asset manager, the asset allocator, uh, someone like me. There's the different investment vehicles. There's the different people that manage those investment vehicles. There's the, the regulators. There's the economies. There's a big ecosystem that where everything has to exist in checks and balances. And the only way that's going to work is if they're full transparency. There has to be transparency. So when I look at this whole issue, um, you know, I'm, I'm encouraged by the fact that going back to the scriptures, um, there is the insight and the blessing from God to everyone in this room that they are capable of creating something from nothing. And Cardinal Turchin used the word co-create. And I think that is something we have to keep in mind from the standpoint of managing our own ego. We are not able to create anything ourselves. Everything is co-creating alongside God the Father. And that is a very important tool to keep in mind. But in terms of the asset manager, today, this is the thin edge of the wedge 
of what I'm calling a movement. Um, many, we, we've had a number of movements. You know, the human rights movement started with Eleanor Roosevelt in 1949, when she gave this great speech before the UN. Uh, we've had the sustainability goals movement with the UN and conservation, which has developed a lot of uh, steam in the last five years. We've now got ESG, um, environmental, social and governance goals that many companies are now embracing, particularly as it relates to their supply chains about modern slavery, making sure they don't have slaves in their supply chain because you, the consumer, won't tolerate that. But this movement, it's a movement that has to take where the individual, you know, you can only change the world one person at a time or one attitude at a time, which is something Teresa of Calcutta would say to people. You can only change society based on one person at a time. And I'm, I'm reminded of that, that this has to be, this can't just be relied on regulators. It can't just be relied on the Catholic Church. It has to go back to the individual. Because remember, everyone is nurtured by the capitalist system for one reason. It's not for money. It's actually for the dignity of work. And I think sometimes we forget uh, that the dignity of work, because it establishes your entire identity, your role in society, your relationship with your family, your, your ability to provide. And it's that a role, it's that identity you see in the Joseph in the Old Testament and the Joseph in the New Testament, both the people who were workers but who were there to play a role as providers, whether it's a foster father or someone who's there to allocate, to protect, to nurture, and to make investments. So the dignity of work is something we cannot overlook. So I spend a lot of time uh, in my job talking to companies about ethical profit versus profit, talking to people about ethics and values. And it's interesting, when you talk about ethics and values, you talk about transparency, you talk about the common good, but the word ethics and values together creates the word ethos, which means you're trying to change the way society thinks about itself. And if this is going to happen over the longer term, there has to be a grassroots movement element to it. You know, and I think we go back to the Bible, um, and I, we've seen a lot of changes now, and we have to remember the power of social media is something we have never had before. You can transform a brand, you know, a film can be, can rise and fall over three days, a brand can disappear in two or three days because of, of a brand problem. So the power of social media on issues like profit, uh, ethics, and making sure that the system, the financial system, is actually focusing on companies that are producing ethical profit, that asset managers for their pension fund beneficiaries or for their other beneficiaries exercise duty of care to ensure that they are actually focusing on an ethically managed portfolio, uh, broadly defined. So in closing, uh, this is not something we can just put in the hands of the regulators. It's not something you can put in the hands of the corporation. Corporations must run ethical businesses and they must not focusing on maximizing profit but maximizing the highest ethical profit. But it's also about transparency and it's also about the respect for the individual who is actually the worker who's worked and contributed their life 
and they, they deserve to be part of a system. But it also has one other thing. Remember that other wonderful part of the scriptures about um, the apostles and Christ talking about making the apostles fishers of men. And the image of the fish is a very powerful image, but it also, remember one thing, just to give you some very blunt street talk. The fish rots from the head. And unless the leaders in society, in government, in the church, in media, in asset management, and across the board, identify this as a tier one issue for the common good, it is not going to change because there has to be corporations and leaders. This has to start at the top unless it's a value that's embraced by leaders as an important value and not treated as a soft issue, but a hard issue and a real issue. Uh, it's not going to change. It will take time, but like all movements, they start off aspirational, but after a while you really get excited because you know you've actually started to make some real progress. Thank you. Our fourth speaker um, is uh, Professor Mary Hirschfeld. And to again think about sort of where we are in our sort of journey throughout this. Uh, the positive value of the market must be related to the common good. And this is a statement from Pope John Paul II, and it's so similar to the themes that Cardinal Turkson has pointed out today. So I think it's, it's helpful to have the insights of a scholar like uh, Professor Hirschfeld and help us sort through some of this. So, Um, hi. So I started off my career as an economist and then I became a theologian. Uh, so you know what they say about a master of all a jack of all trades and a master of none. Uh, that might be my situation a little bit. But I do think what I bring to these conversations is in making the journey from economics to theology, um, it was something like a conversion. I don't mean just a conversion from being an atheist or agnostic to God, but just in the way that I saw the world. Uh, so I want to lay out a little bit of what that looks like as a hope of trying to build a bridge for, for thinking about these issues or a framework for thinking about them that I hope to be interesting or helpful. Um, so the good news, we start on common ground. It's not just theologians or ethicists or people out in the world thinking that the financial crisis had a moral dimension. Um, Almost everybody is willing to acknowledge this. In the wake of the financial crisis, numerous economists, they were like falling all over each other in order to say there's something going wrong in the moral sector here. Uh, we, need, we need to do something about this. Economist Jeffrey Sachs opened his book in this uh, genre with the claim that at the root of America's economic crisis lies a moral crisis, the decline of civic virtue among America's political and economic elite. Okay, so how should we think about this uh, moral crisis around finance? Well, one approach would uh, tell the following story. All else equal, it's good for people to try to maximize profits. Unfortunately, some of the practices that would maximize profits are unethical. 
So we need to set out some ethical guidelines and perhaps even laws and regulations to keep the profit-seeking behavior in bounds, and then we can enjoy the fruits of all these good uh, financial instruments. Now, if we left it like that, we, we still have a problem as set out in uh, the document. Um, if mere profit is placed at the summit of the culture of a financial enterprise and the actual demands of the common good are ignored, every ethical claim is really perceived as irrelevant. Um, I take that just to be saying, if the purpose of the business is to maximize profits, everything else is going to be subordinate to it. And it's going to be easy to overlook those ethical, those niggling ethical boundaries. Okay. Now notice there's two ways that we could work to try to encourage business to act ethically. The first would be to challenge the idea that the, <clears throat> the idea that profit uh, is or should be the summit of the culture of financial enterprise. And the second would be to strengthen the perception that, well, yes, the, the profit matters, but <clears throat> the common good is also really important to elevate that. So we can either weaken the desire for profits and or strengthen the commitment to attend to the common good. Now, the church is in a position to contribute a perspective that does both. Um, but to really learn from that perspective requires a conversion of sorts, or at least that was my experience. And I sometimes think the church doesn't fully recognize that its views do require a conversion of sorts. And again, I'm not talking about from not God to God, but a, a, just a reorientation towards what the nature of the good is, what the nature of the human person is. Okay. Um, and so sometimes I think it presents its message in a way that may not fully re register. So uh, what I want to do here this evening is try to draw attention to the kind of conversion I mean. Okay. Now there are two ways we could frame this problem. Um, either finance, financial ethics is a matter of pruning, uh, pruning, holding back an otherwise healthy desire uh, to make profit, or financial ethics can show that the desire itself is corrupt root and branch. The position I draw from working with the thought of St. Thomas Aquinas is that the actual ethical challenge uh, is more of the second sort. Um, that the desire to maximize profits is a corrupt desire. Now, note well, I'm not saying that the desire for profits is corrupt in itself. The problem is treating them as something that all else equal would be desire to maximize, to get as much of as possible. Okay, the key to seeing what's at stake here is to begin with the thought that the church shares with uh, most of the secular world, that humans have built in them a longing for the infinite good. We're infinitely hungry. The difference, and it's a big one, lies in how we understand the nature of this infinite good. Now for the church, our longing for the infinite good is well expressed by St. Augustine. Thou hast made us for thyself, O Lord, and our heart is restless until it rests in thee. God alone can fill up the infinite desire of our hearts. And our, and our infinite hunger will not be satiated until we rest in God. But in this life, we can find a meaningful sort of happiness in the echoes of God we find in the world, and these we find in the higher human goods. Uh, I'm thinking about things like the joy of human relationship and communion with others, the quest to find truth, goodness, and beauty as part of our spiritual quest to draw closer to God, uh, and the project of developing our own potentials, working to become admirable and even lovely versions of ourselves, um, trying to fulfill our human um, potential. The art of living well is the art of cultivating these authentic human goods. So in a life oriented around these authentic goods that ought to be fulfilling, that ought to make us feel 
uh, satiated, um, the desire for material goods would be uh, finite. It, at minimum, it would be subordinated to these higher goods. But I also would argue it would tend to be finite. The reason is, if my ultimate good is trying to live in community with people, trying to pursue the truth, trying to become an admirable sort of a person, I only need so many clothes, so much food, so much shelter in order to perform this function. Um, <clears throat> so the idea would be, if I'm, I'm really oriented this way, uh, I look at the kind of life it would take for me to pursue these goods that I really want, and I should be able to identify roughly, more or less, how much is enough for me to live on in order to do this. If we are well-formed in a life like that, then any extra money we had would be basically superfluous, it would be an abundance to us, and it would be available to share with others at no sense of sacrifice to myself. If I need $80,000 to live a good life as a single professor at Villanova, uh, a $10,000 raise is available to help people who need help. Okay. Now, in such a world, profits still have an important role to play in business. Um, profit allows uh, business people to earn a living by the work they do, which is a perfectly good thing. Um, profits serve as an important signal about how to allocate resources. Markets are incredibly efficient at organizing human interactions in the business world. Um, but profits need not be the main goal of a good business. The main goal of a good business, as um, Cardinal Turkson talked about, the main goal of the business is actually providing those goods and services that are of value to the community providing a good working place for the employees, building up community around the enterprise that they're doing. In short, you can think of business, like all human endeavors, as being ordered towards these higher goods. And the profits and income uh, would be instrumental goods that would help them to do that, but would not be the ultimate point of it. Uh, I've written a lovely book called Aquinas in the Market that lays this out really fully, so you can look that up. Okay. <clears throat> Now, this picture of pursuing the infinite good by pursuing a life well-lived with wisdom and harmony and pursuing these higher goods um, is different from the pursuit of the infinite good that is uh, available in the secular view, especially as it comes out in economic analysis and I think in the way a lot of businesses think. In the secular world, the desire for the infinite good manifests itself as the desire for more, more money, more power. As Thomas Hobbes put it, and I'm going to paraphrase a little bit because he has this old English, um, happiness, felicity, is a continual progress of the desire from one object to another, the attaining of the one object being still but the way to the next one. So that in the first place, I put for a general inclination of all mankind a perpetual and restless desire of power after power that ceases only in death. The ancient Greeks had a word for the type of desires described by Hobbes. The word was pleonexia. Pleonexia is an unbounded desire for wealth or power or status that frequently issues in ruthless behavior. Um, but even more deeply, the desire, a pleonexic desire, I think of it as a hungry desire. So in Dante's Inferno, Dante encounters this hungry she-wolf. And she's just, however much she eats, she's still ravenous. And this is this pleonexic desire. It can never have enough of what it wants. If desire is of that character, it will take external regulation to keep me from knocking down others in my zeal to get what I want, since more is what I'm after and I will never have enough of it. 
Now, if, if you're following what I'm trying to lay out, um, you should hear how this maps directly onto the ethical framework I started with. If we think that in financial markets, people properly pursue as much profit as they get, can get, and <clears throat> that we therefore have to impose an external regulation to keep them from hurting other people, we are thinking of the desire for profit as a form of pleonexia. The form of desire embodied in pleonexia is formally equivalent also to the form of desire modeled by economists in the rational choice model. It models human choice as an exercise in maximizing utility or profit subject to utility subject to constraint. That is, <clears throat> whatever we are trying to maximize, whether it's utility or profits, is desired in an unbounded way. The only thing that holds us back is not having enough power or money to get what we want. Okay, I'm going to skip a little bit. So why does this matter? Whereas the Greeks identified pleonexia as a vice, um, and, the, and we've talked about Marcus has been with us always, this is true. The desire for more has been with us always, this is true. Aristotle, Plato, everybody has identified pleonexia as part of human package. Um, but the difference is they thought it was a vice, and we've normalized it. Indeed, um, we identify rationality with successful maximization of utility or profit. Uh, we sometimes even say that it is good that people behave this way. I mean, to call something rationalist, to identify it as a good way of thinking. And once we have a culture that thinks that pleonexia just is the natural and even good form of human desire, we should not be surprised that we have a lot of difficulty curbing the ruthless behavior that is associated with it. If my goal in life is to maximize as much as I can, I'm going to feel constrained by abstract ethical considerations and will have a tendency to discount them. So when you talk about the common good, I'll nod along and think that's nice, but when I get back into the pit to go trading, it's probably not going to be the first thing I'm thinking about. Okay. <clears throat> so like I said, it's true. Oh. What's happened? Sorry. Um, okay. Sorry. Okay. So it does have this venerable history, um, like I said, that it's a vice. Um, and it matters that we no longer think of it as a vice. I think it makes a very, very big difference that we cannot even conceive of another way of pursuing the human good, one that involves the cultivation of wisdom and the art of living well. So that first vision of happiness I talked about that comes out of the church's approach and also out of ancient wisdom. Um, is really hard for people to grasp. My students, it takes a long time in the classroom to get them even to see the possibility of what I'm talking about. Okay. If people can't even conceive of a different approach to fulfilling their desire for the infinite, then pleonexia is the only path remaining. Um, <clears throat> okay. While it's certainly true that we must deal with the world as it is, i.e. one where almost everybody thinks desire, an infinite desire should be expressed as the pursuit of more. Um, given that the culture is like that, um, we should expect people to be tempted to take shortcuts while maximizing their profits or their utility. Um, for reasons I explain in my book, we should expect these temptations to be particularly strong in finance, where money is traded for money. Money in its abstraction positively invites us to think of the infinite in terms of more, because money just adds up. 
So because of the world we live in, we certainly need to think about devising ethical norms and even regulations to enforce them. So pragmatically, our discussion about how to place boundaries or regulations to curb behavior is exactly the right conversation to have. But what I want to suggest briefly is that we should also work to create more cultural space for the richer and truer account of human happiness found in the church. There's a potential story to be told about the more and more aggressive versions of pleonexia we see in finance over the last few decades. Um, I'm 58, it really does seem to me like the world has shifted, the culture has shifted towards a more uh, <clears throat> unproblematic, more um, intense pursuit of financial gain without a sense of any kind of restraint. Um, so there's a potential story we could tell, it's possible that what's going on is that there's a diminishment of cultural resistance to pleonexia as the cultural embodiments of this richer form of human happiness have come under, have started to wither away. We have less religious commitment, we have less commitment to families, community stability is in decline. All of these used to provide um, breakers in the culture where people could be reminded of the richer things that make life worth living. And as those have faded away, we're getting hungrier and hungrier and that starts to feed into the pleonexic desire that can never have enough. That's one possible story we could think about. Okay. Um, it's entirely possible that starving souls, increasingly starving souls, are increasingly turning to the ultimate empty pursuit of the good embodied in the unceasing striving for one good after another that ceases only in death. If that's right then, um, we all need to think at least a little bit about conversion. Um, first to the people who are working in finance and economics and, and in that sphere. Um, the one thing I would ask you all just to notice is that when we talk about trying to maximize um, either utility or profits, um, and when we talk about behavior that's designed towards maximizing these things as rational, we are encouraging ourselves, others, and especially our students to in fact think of their pursuit of happiness in this form. Um, it's perfectly reasonable to say that people do in fact behave this way and so that our models of human behavior work well because that's how they work. Descriptively, it might well be the case that most pleonexic desire is, most desire is pleonexic. Um, so be pragmatic about it, but you can make, you can create some space between the description of humans and the valorization, the validation of that kind of desire. Okay. As for the church, the church has this wealth of beautiful teachings about what this more rich form of human happiness is. We heard a good bit of it from His Eminence tonight about what true human well-being is, what true business is about, these sorts of things. Um, and all I would ask is for the church to keep talking about it, but to try to fill out and expand more completely this vision of what the authentic pursuit of human happiness looks like with maybe a little bit more mindfulness the world is increasingly deaf to that picture because once you think that happiness just is the pursuit of more, it can be harder to even grasp these richer, fuller types of goods. Thank you. Well, I think our, our panel has given us a lot to think about. Um, I, I must say our last speaker was, was somewhat of a a downer for those of us in finance. Uh, I, uh, I, I will say that I, I do think that there are people in finance who really do actually pr pursue what you want them to pursue. I, I was once invited in to give a talk to a hedge fund. 
I can't tell you who they are because they're the most secretive hedge fund in the world and I had to sign a non-disclosure agreement. Um, but they're an interesting hedge fund because they have been very successful and they have given billions to charity. Um, and it's an interesting question, right? If you do your job well, and I think that business is a vocation, right? If financiers do their job well, then they should, in principle, make the pie bigger for everyone. The system should work better. People in, in you know, less developed countries will have access to capital. People who want homes will have access to mortgages. People who have business ideas will have the ability to do it. So I don't think we want to lose sight of the fact that when we do our jobs well, it is, can be both ethical, moral, and good for society. It's when we don't do our jobs well that we lose sight of it. And I agree completely with Mary that when the pursuit of gain, solely for gain, without thinking about, well, what are you going to do with all of this, then you've lost sight. And that's where I think that the document really helps us keep that perspective in mind. So we don't have a lot of time left, but the tradition of these, these Lumen Christi conferences is to open it up for some questions and we usually kind of keep the first couple of questions to be from students. So who amongst our brave students would like to ask the first question?